scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 to 31. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Painted door. Um, I think actually it is a good morning for us to do a bit of summer reflection today. Uh, it's the middle of July. I am here with a fresh sunburn, as you all can see, uh, from watching my boys uh, play baseball at Smith Park just just yesterday. Um, And we are smack dab in the middle of what we all tell each other is the primary reason that we live in Chicago, right? Um, We certainly don't live here for the snow or the cold, unless you're a masochist among us, be gone. Um, We don't live here for the rents or the taxes. We certainly don't live here for the parking tickets. We live here for the summers, right? And the summers in Chicago are when the city comes alive, and really they are quite wonderful, quite great. Um, But let me ask you, do you ever find yourself in the middle of this three- to four-month party uh, in what I will call a sort of summer despondency? that familiar to you at all? Um, Just a sort of life lethargy. We're right in the middle of all the street festivals and all the fun and all the wonder. Uh, You find yourself just lacking in will or ambition or in any desire to move forward in any particular direction. Um... If you're like me, that is certainly the case. For me, summer is a two-sided coin because on one side, certainly, I love it. I love uh, everyone being out. I love the hot summer nights. I love the vacations. I love just being in the water. Even a person of my complexion loves being in the sun from time to time, uh, or at least looking at others as they enjoy the hot sun. 
Um, but I also find that in these summer months, my zeal for life can sag amid the heat. It's almost like my motivation is melting away somehow, right in the middle of all this fun. And maybe you can chalk that up, at least part of it, to the fact that for 20 years in our childhood, we are conditioned to think of summer as a break, right? When you're a kid, summer is lazy. There's no school. There's no responsibility. It's just a big block of free time next to a sprinkler, right, when you're a kid. And then you grow up into adulthood, and it's rather alarming, I think, that first summer when you realize your boss expects you to show up to work in July. (laughs) Wait, what? Um, And so I think some of the summer lethargy can be explained by that rhythm, that childhood rhythm, that childhood conditioning. But I suspect that there's more to it than that. And my suspicion that there's more to it than that comes from this reality that in the summertime, we have more opportunity to reflect on our lives. Right? In the summertime, you go to bed a little bit later, you get up a little bit earlier, there's more light in your day. And at least for my part, I find myself in more conversation in the summertime. I tend to watch television less, eat fewer comfort foods, never mind what my body might suggest. That's on account of other things, (laughs) like drinks mainly. Um, But you find time to reflect, time to consider your life that you don't have during the rest of the year. During the rest of the year, you are so focused on just keeping your head above water with all the tasks and to-dos that life requires that there's very little time to notice yourself or notice your life, very little time for reflection. So I think actually there's a connection between having more time to reflect on ourselves, more time to reflect on our lives, reflect on what the purpose of this all is, what the meaning of it all is, and a lifeless sort of despondency that can come to fruition as a result of that reflection. Certainly also as we reflect on our lives, there can be an increased sense of gratitude as we notice all of the treasures in our lives. But that does not wipe out this other reality, this other picture that we start to notice perhaps that our lives are not turning out the way that we dreamed. We start to wonder, how did I get here exactly? And how does this connect in any way with the sense of direction that I had, the sense of longing that I had as a child? Am I even living in the life or the rhythm or the story that I want? Why am I spending all my time and energy in the direction that I am? Does this connect in any way with the meaning and purpose 
that I had as a kid are the dreams that I had as a kid still somehow relevant to me? Should I be aiming at those still? Do dreams even have a place in this harsh, unforgiving world? Or am I simply meant to survive, to eke out a life, to carry the burdens of staying employed and staying loved? And is that all that it's about? What am I saying here? What am I asking? Well, where I'm going with this is that I think that many of us, in fact, are fairly disillusioned about the ways in which our lives are turning out. And any time that you have a prolonged period of reflection, I think that disillusionment has opportunity to come to the surface. Typically, we find plenty of ways to distract ourselves from facing that disillusionment. We pour ourselves into careers or into child-rearing or we find some great hobby, for example, that can keep our minds off the fact that we are disillusioned. But I think many of us are surviving, sleepwalking, if you will, existing more than we are living. Well, this summer, we are, as a church, spending our time together mining the scriptures for good news to various people groups. And so what I want to do today with all of you is mine the scriptures for good news to those of us who find ourselves in that place of disillusionment. Those of us who look at the world when we have chance to do so, look at our lives and reflect on our lives when we have chance to do so, and don't recognize the world that we thought we would conquer as children. We see a world, in fact, that has conquered us. So let me start by saying that the Holy Scriptures actually acknowledge to us that life is disillusioning. That's one of my favorite things about the Bible, is that it's a collection of writings that does not sugarcoat reality to us. It offers to us a real picture of the reality that we actually encounter. If you're looking for some solidarity for feelings of disillusionment, you will find it in the scriptures, all over. Perhaps nowhere more than in that great Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you are feeling disillusioned, I recommend that book to you, though perhaps have a friend nearby. But you might start reading, say, in chapter 2, about midway through, in verse 14. We read there, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fools walk in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. 
Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay, the teacher here in the book of Ecclesiastes, who by tradition's account is King Solomon, is seeing through romantic visions of life. Seeing through a picture of a world as a lovely and fair and just playing field that we can all engage in. And that makes sense to us. He's seeing that wise people wind up swimming in as much muck as fools. And so he is asking, what then is the point? Why live wisely? Why pursue anything that is good or upright? Why be industrious? Since we're all going to wind up dead and forgotten anyway, since none of us really ultimately will make any kind of mark on this world, since things will just keep on spinning in their routine madness, no matter what contribution we make, why do anything? Why face the day? Remember now, tradition teaches us that King Solomon is the person who is coming to this place of disillusionment. King Solomon, who, by all historical understanding, amassed enormous amounts of wealth during his life, had a very successful reign over the people of Israel, and what's more, was responsible for building the temple in Jerusalem and therein establishing rhythms of meaningful worship for generations to come after him. If ever there were a person who left a legacy, who made a mark, it would have been Solomon, and yet even King Solomon is coming to this place of utter disillusionment What does that say for you and me? The idea that we could avoid coming to that place of disillusionment is misguided. All of us will come to that place. Or I should say disillusionment will come for us all. And the scriptures invite us to be very honest about that. Solomon again in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, he says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Have you ever noticed this? I'm sure you have, that decent, earnest, sincere people have life take a giant you-know-what on them on a regular basis. Just this past week, actually, a good friend of mine, Ricky Bueno, who's a pastor up in the Round Lake area and has actually come and shared his story in our church. Ricky is a man who at one point in his life was one of the leaders in the Latin Kings in the Round Lake area, 
wound up in prison, came to faith, and upon leaving prison, began a ministry to help other people stuck in gang life come out. And over the past more than a decade, he's helped dozens upon dozens of people leave that gang life. Ricky is a sincere, earnest, dear person who loves and cares for his family and others. And on Wednesday morning, I believe it was, he woke up to two feet of water in his house and all of his possessions ruined. By contrast, many, many marauding deviants woke up in Round Lake on Wednesday morning to dry, warm homes. That's obnoxious. I want two feet of water in other people's houses, not Ricky's of all people. The man's a saint. Why pursue decency in a world with injustice like that? Why get up and tackle the day in a world like that? Solomon again, chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Solomon says the world is broken, and what's more, we're broken. The world is bathed in this kind of nonsensical madness, and so are we. Acacia and I, one of the favorite things that we do during the summer months is that we will sit out on our front patio out in front of our house and have a late night dinner there. And we especially love to do it on Sunday nights uh, because I'm the most relaxed on Sunday night because it's seven more days before I have to do this impossible thing. And I take Monday mornings off and usually play golf. Um, and so I always think Monday's going to be great, and then, you know, golf happens. So Sunday night is wonderful, uh, and so we'll sit out there and enjoy the beautiful evening, maybe get some takeout, open a bottle of rosé, but invariably, our dog, Dexter, who some of you know, and some of you wish you didn't, <laughs> will climb up into the windowsill of our house overlooking our front patio and stand guard there, right, as though something terrible were about to happen. And he's a little schnorky, so he's a mix of a miniature schnauzer and a Yorkie terrier. Uh, and any passersby who happen to linger for a little bit too long, Dexter will promptly alert Danger, danger, in the form of incessant small dog yapping, which is 
obnoxious because my wife and I are enjoying a lovely night in the great Chicago summers and our dog is shouting danger, danger, danger throughout the entire evening. Now, dogs are fairly intuitive creatures. They can sense when, say, a storm is coming. They're alerted to danger prior to all of us. And so in some ways, you reflect on that, perhaps, maybe, my dog has a point. Uh, In fact, just earlier this month, there was a shooting half a block away from our front patio. Two people were shot on the 4th of July in the early evening hours, around 7.30, while many of you were barbecuing with me in my backyard and didn't hear the shots because we thought they were just part of the 4th of July celebration. Or two years ago, two summers ago now, there was a shooting right next door to us. Uh, I happened to be sitting out on that same patio doing some premarital counseling. Kyle and Leanne, right? It was us? Yep. Yep. And uh, we all kind of looked at each other like, was that fireworks? Was that gunshots? Um, And then our operations and music director, Sam, came out of her front door and informed us that she had made eye contact with the shooter, and we still have the two bullet holes in her garage to prove it. So perhaps my dog is slightly more aware of the reality of this world, the harsh and unforgiving realities of this world, than I am simply living in my oblivious bubble, eating my takeout with my wife. I mean, the truth is, the reality is that kids are dying in the streets of our city on a weekly basis, if not daily basis, during the summer. And they're dying not in a city a long way off somewhere else. They're dying right here in our city. We live right in the middle of this kind of unjust madness that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is speaking to. Why shouldn't we all be disillusioned? What possible reason is there to pursue justice and wisdom when that kind of perverse insanity seems to carry on no matter what our contribution, no matter what we do? That just seems like a constant reality, no matter how much good work is done. But this is why I love the scriptures so much, because while, yes, they speak to us of this world with an unflinching honesty, the scriptures also speak to us about another world that is lapping up on our shores. Paul writes in his famous first letter to the Corinthian church. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church in the first century. I recall reading this passage, these two verses in particular, when I did not read the Bible at all, so I'm not sure how I read them as an 18-year-old just graduating from high school and moving off to college, but they struck me in a way that was sufficient enough for me to print them out and post them onto my bedroom wall. Didn't really understand them or have any context to understand them. I think mainly as an 18-year-old, you're trying to signal to the world that you're thoughtful. But these struck a chord with me. Hear these words. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Maybe all of our assumptions about what is good or about how things ought to be, maybe all of our ideas about justice and about how things should be ordered are wrong. Maybe disillusionment is God's way of rescuing us out of our wisdom. See, what Paul is saying here is that natural wisdom, what we all universally as human beings sort of automatically assume about how the world should work, about what is up and what is down and what is forward and what is backward, that all of that wisdom couldn't get us to God. All of that understanding didn't lead us toward God, couldn't help us meet God, didn't lead us to right conceptions of God. In all of our automatic thinking, we couldn't even recognize God when he showed up on our block. In fact, the way that we think and measure decency and patience and love leads us away from God. God's wisdom, the way that God thinks about goodness, the way that God thinks about love, What God calls good is utter foolishness to us. Because his way of wisdom looks like a cross. And the cross just looks like utter terror to us. We don't want a cross. Every time a cross shows up in your life or in my life, we are absolutely sure that everything has gone terribly wrong. And our impulse, first, second, and otherwise, is to run from it with all that we are. We want a God 
who will heal our disillusionment by restoring our illusions. That's what we want. We want to go back to pre-disillusionment. We want a God who will reassure us that the world is in fact a just and fair playing field. We want a God that will talk us into the idea that this world can be a safe space. Tell me I don't have to hurt anymore. Tell me that bullies are going away. Or at least tell me that karma is real. So that I know that people who deserve it will get it. God says, no. I'm not a liar. And I have a much more honest salvation in mind for you. Paul writes, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says church people... Jews, people of faith, of all stripes, they want a salvation from God that leads to a healing for everyone and everything in the here and now. A miraculous demonstration of everything being put back together, and they're looking for a God who will do that. The God who will do that will have my allegiance, the religious person says. Paul says on the flip side, non-church people, irreligious people, they want knowledge. They want understanding. They want insight. They want knowledge that can lead to healing of everyone and everything. Think modern medicine. Think turning to science. Our understanding of the world is our hope and our salvation. But the only true salvation that God is offering, that the God of the scriptures is offering, does not accord with human wisdom. Human wisdom of any kind, whether it be religious wisdom or irreligious wisdom, God's salvation is like nothing we would have ever expected. Christ crucified? How is that salvation? How is that possibly good news? Yeah, we already know that terrible things happen to good people. What does one more gross injustice befalling a righteous person prove? What does it offer to us? We were already convinced of that, Lord. How does that work? The cross is the absolute opposite of the sort of healing that church people are generally looking for. What's more, getting yourself falsely convicted by offering no defense, as Jesus did, 
is the opposite of the kind of wisdom and knowledge and rhetoric that non-church people are looking for. The cross is the opposite of the salvation that we are after. It only adds to our disillusionment. It's a case in point. Terrible stuff happens to good people. So then what gives? How is Christ crucified? Good news for disillusioned people. Paul's answer, I think, is surprising. It's good news because hurting and disillusioned people are just the sort that God wants. They're just the sort that he is after. And he wants them so much that he's willing to become one of them, to be with them. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says our wisdom is not what leads us to God. It's our disillusionment. It's our disillusionment that leads us to him. It's our weakness. It's being burned out. It's being sapped of all zeal. It's running into the brick wall that is the injustice of this world. That's where God meets us, in the painful disillusionment of a cross. Everything about the crucifixion of Jesus is disillusioning. As Fleming Rutledge says, a crucified man is a non-person, a nothing. Crucifixion is the public undoing of a person's life. It's the public announcement that that way of being and living ought to be erased from memory. No one should ever follow in that way. Look at the horror that it leads to. Certainly, you will be forgotten there. That sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, actually that all of us will die and be forgotten, both the wise and the foolish, both the righteous and the wicked. Jesus entered into that disillusioning and terrifying thought. He came right into that disillusioned place with us. He said, I'll be chewed up by the world too. I'll have all my dreams shattered too. I'll taste what it is to run into that brick wall with you. I'll have all the power drained out of me. I'll become a nobody with you. And why? So we can wallow in pain and misery with God? Never. 
On the contrary, God has entered our disillusionment. He's entered our pain so that we can see and know that in it, we have nothing to fear. That this world can take its best shot. It can crush all our dreams. It can erase all of our worldly hopes. It can undo all of our worldly wisdom. It can leave us in shambles, a crumpled heap. And even there, God will meet us with life. That we cannot be detached from the unending source of life that is our good God. God will not be God without us. He will only be God with us. No matter how great this world fails, his love, his life, his resurrection power is at hand in the most disillusioning of places, especially there. Don't you know who you are by faith? Don't you know in whom you live? Paul says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We don't need our illusions about our own wisdom or our own strength restored. We don't need our illusions about the fairness of this world restored. Jesus is our healing. He is our decency. He is our righteousness. He is our consolation. He is all that we need. Jesus is everything. And though all else fails, we live in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the life that he lived and the depths that he entered to come to us and be with us and bring you and your spirit to us. Father, remind us. Remind us of the salvation that you are affecting in the world. Remind us of Christ, the treasure that he is, and the freedom that we have in him. Lord, I pray that you would meet those in this room who are disillusioned, who are weary, who are being undone by the crosses of this life. Would they know you in that place? Be present with us as we labor and struggle and suffer and give us joy and life there. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.